Hello, and welcome to Everything But the Building, a podcast about the people, places, and history behind the profession of landscape architecture. I'm your host, Stacey Brechtrup. Today's guest is Sean Kelly of Kelly Design Group, LLC in Williams Bay, Wisconsin. Sean is also a distinguished faculty associate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he was my advisor and professor throughout my landscape architecture studies. Today is the first of a two-part episode where I get to speak with Sean about his career and the basics of landscape architecture. Well, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate your time. Could you give me a little bit of background on yourself? Mm, Sure. I was uh, born in Denver, raised in Arizona, and uh, in a small town called Prescott, Arizona, where I was, it was kind of a cow town when I still grew up there. And so I, I grew up with horses and um, was very engaged. And uh, I, I worked on my dad's freight docks from when I was a very young kid. And then um, worked with my hands pretty much, got into sports, developed leadership skills, worked with my dad's employees. when they were 40 years old and I was eight and quickly realized that uh, it's not always an easy thing being the boss's kid especially when you're working with people that that's what they're doing, you know, that's their job. And so I physically and literally had to lift my weight when I was eight years old and then on onward and learned some interesting leadership skills on those docks. And those stuck with me the rest of my life and matured as I went. In high school, I was uh, lucky enough to go to a school where I could still do a lot of things. And I participated in multiple sports. I was a four-year letterman in gymnastics, and then became a three-year varsity captain, which was a little bit of an anomaly, but again, that leadership thing was coming up. I won a competitive nomination to the United States Military Academy at West Point out of college, or out of high school, rather, and had a choice. I had a free ride to go to uh, Central College in Pella, Iowa for music, or I could go to the United States Military Academy and learn how to be a soldier. And ended up taking the, last, the latter choice. It was right at the end of the Vietnam War. Um, learned a lot there, had a great experience in leadership, learned more tools and skills, and it was, a, it was a, an interesting time to be in the military at the end of the Vietnam War. I end up uh, coming back to Arizona, and um, I knew I wanted to work in international agriculture, and so I wanted to go to the University of Arizona, and the closest major I could find was really range management, which allowed me to learn a lot of the basics that later turned into the perfect way to learn to be a landscape architect. I learned about soils and natural systems. It was in the School of Renewable Natural Resources, so I learned about wildlife and uh, different systems, system biology. I had a pretty good, strong math background from my time at the academy, so uh, that was pretty much taken care of, but I had to learn a lot about natural systems. And so that was a big focus while I was at the University of Arizona for my first degree. And that was a Bachelor of Science. And then I was uh, working construction after I graduated, working road construction. And I got a call that uh, there, was a, there was an opportunity for me to work in uh, Africa in what was then a third world country called Burkina Faso now. It was then called Upper Volta. And it was uh, doing range management there, an international project that was an ongoing project. And I realized that uh, when I was there, looking back now, I was doing the stuff a landscape architect would do. At that point in history, the, the, they were year five of what was a, a seven-year drought. Uh, just at the, this little country is the size of the state of Colorado and located immediately below the Sahara Desert. 
it's landlocked, and at that time it was the third poorest country in the world. And um, the desert was racing south. And so as a result of that, AID was engaged in having somebody there to monitor those trends and talk about ways we could heal it. But the thing they realized was that there had never been a baseline data inventory done for that part of the world. And so if you're familiar with weather patterns, you look at the weather channel, you'll see those bands that run across in the map view, the bands that run across all the continents and basically predict uh, the amount of rainfall that will typically come down in within that band. Those are called isohyoidal bands. And so it turned out that where I was doing this, I was, I was hired to do the baseline data inventory for the country. And then my data was good for that entire isohyoidal band that flowed below the Sahara Desert all the way across the continent. Um, the baseline data inventory was to figure out where they were ecologically because they knew it was degrading, but they didn't know how fast because they didn't have a baseline with which to measure. So my job was to, first off, I was given an 80,000 hectare site in the southern part of the country. And then there was another 80,000 hectare site in the northern part of the country that was being finished by my project manager. And so I helped him with his data. Then I lived on my site and um, basically found what I could determine to be the most pristine part of this 80,000 hectares and then monitored the, the soil for health and vigor and vitality, looked at, did clip plot analysis of all the different species. So I had to be able to categorize those and then uh, see how they were healthy or dry or you know, how they were reproducing if they were uh, what the vigor of the plant was. And then I did a clip plot analysis so that I would clip the grasses and plants and air dry them. That was pretty easy because the relative humidity was like negative. There, <laughs> It was crazy hot and very dry. So I air dried the species, then took uh, vegetative analysis of what those were worth to translate into that into nutritive value for the animals that would eat it. Then I also monitored uh, wildlife and uh, human interaction. There was very little in this part of the country where I was for later for reasons I found out later. But um, I, I established the first erosion trend plots in that part of Africa so that I could monitor what, the, what was happening with the soil and then uh, did wildlife counts. And so um, at the end of the time, I came up with a result that was talking about a baseline. So now they could measure how fast it was degrading and understand how much impact the desert moving had on that environment. And I originally wanted to do that kind of work for the rest of my life. And I'd met my wife just before she was in the same major, just before I went to Africa. And she went to work for the Forest Service upon her graduation. And we were kind of going to go back and do that. But while I was working there, a um, really funny thing happened. And I got really engaged with the people because I lived in the country. I didn't leave, live in a compound. I lived, actually, at the end, I lived in a tent for the last eight months I was there on my site. And um, at that point, the, the project uh, chauffeurs who were 300 kilometers away at the Capitol refused to come deliver goods to me anymore because they were pretty sure I was crazy. They said, nobody lives there. And so I bought a black market motorcycle from Ghana that I would use to go get groceries once a month. I'd make the 300 kilometer trip. And um, while I'm doing that, I realized that uh, the people were, were not being well served by the work that was going on. And I felt like I was a part of that. And I didn't want to do that for a career. It was very difficult and challenging. So I came back and my wife had told me when I first met her, she said, you know, you should really look into landscape architecture. And I told her, no, there's no way. I'm on a collision course with graduation. I've run out of money. I've got to get some money. I got to make it, got to get back to work. 
And a couple of my professors echoed that as well. They said, you know, you ought to think about that. Nope. And so while I'm sitting there one night outside my tent, listening to the lions roar and, and cooking something over some little fire, I thought about it. And I thought, you know, they're right. I should come back and look into this landscape architecture thing. So when I moved back to the States, um, I went back to driving a truck to make money and uh, started taking classes that I didn't have. Uh, like Art 101, because I'd never taken that in school. I always was drawing, and that's part of the reason people thought I should be in the landscape architecture, because I was exploring how to build things and stuff. But I didn't know how to do it formally, so I had to take that as a prereq and do those things while I was driving a truck. And then um, got back into grad school. I was actually in, a, in in line for a second bachelor's degree, and Herb Zubi was the department chair at that time, and he talked me out of it said, you need to get a master's degree. And so I said, well, here's the deal. I want to be a practicing landscape architect. I don't want to be a theorist. So what I want to do is I want to be able to do the work. And he said, well, I'll make you a deal. You can take all the graduate classes. You can write your thesis. You can take all of the undergraduate classes you want. And you can be out of here in three years. And I said, really? And I said, well, I also have a full-time job. He said, yeah, you can do that. So I did it. And I ended up, I was two courses short of a BLA, a bachelor's degree in landscape architecture. But I fulfilled the master's and wrote a th pretty extensive thesis on the perception of scale in urban plazas uh, because perception is key to what we do as landscape architects. And um, then I uh, went ahead and got my graduate degree. My daughter was born while I was just before I became a graduate student, in fact, and now she's a landscape architect. And um, very proud of all my kids. I have three kids, uh, an incredible wife, the smartest person I've ever met in my entire life. And, uh, I'm just really, really fortunate to then uh, have graduated. I got my master's degree and uh, went to work in California, San Diego. And that was the first jump out of the chute for me. During the process of that, I've held a lot of different jobs in between those, between uh, that time and when I began. I, I've worked on ranches and I've uh, been a rodeo cowboy and I've done the military thing and I've driven a tractor trailer, um, run survey crews. I had an iron company for a while, manufacturing custom iron. And I could go on and on. I've done an awful lot of crazy things. But uh, anyway, I went to California and started working as a military planner at a firm because of my military background and quickly was able to move into the landscape architecture part of that project, that, that particular firm. And then ever since then, I, I worked through six different firms in San Diego and then moved to Wisconsin where I started my own firm again. I had one in California for for a period of time. Started my firm here in uh, Williams Bay, Wisconsin, and a year later started teaching full-time at the University of wisconsin Madison. And at the same time, I was also keeping my practice going, and that's been the case for the last 24 years. So what year was it that you started teaching at Madison? Oh my gosh, um, 96. Okay, so I was in your classes from 2009 to 13, I believe. So, yeah, you had plenty of, <laughs> thanks, <laughs> plenty of years in, you've had a diverse background <laughs> in landscape architecture throughout your years. Can you explain for listeners, what exactly is the profession of landscape architecture? Well, that's, that's one we could go on for a long, long time about, um, I'll try to keep it really simple, though. It's a, it's a blend of art and science, which is really a fantastic place to be. Um, landscape architecture is an incredibly diverse profession. There are 
you could have a room full of landscape architects and each one is going to practice probably something different, some part different, but they all complement each other. It's basically, as your podcast says, it's everything outside of the building, really pretty much from building to building is what we do. And I often uh, am, I'm occasionally rather hired to collaborate with architects about how to locate a building, how to set that building in space, because a lot of architecture schools teach the student that the ground floor is at elevation zero. Well, that's not true. <laughs> There's grade around it. You know, how do people get to that building? Where do they leave their car? How does water move? How does air move? How does that building set in the landscape in terms of energy? Because if you nestle a building in, it's much different than setting it on top of a, a hill. So we have all those discussions and that's where landscape architecture starts to talk about really everything that gets you into that building. And oftentimes I work best when I can work with an interior uh, architect so that we can talk about how to make the inside and the outside mesh together. So that really it's a continual experience from the outside all the way into the building and through. We concern ourselves with the Americans with Disabilities Act. So a universal access is absolutely critical to what we do. Um, I was once accused of doing bespoke landscapes. And I thought I was, I was baffled by that because I thought, well, yeah, that's exactly what we do. Every, every project is a one-off because there's no two sites that are identical. I've yet to find any, and I've been practicing a good long time. And I thought, well, the person that said that to me in a, in a kind of a deprecating way, I thought, well, I respect this person. So having left that meeting, I, I looked it up to figure out what bespoke meant that I didn't think it meant. And I was much surprised to find it meant exactly what I thought. It means that every landscape has a specific element that relates to that space. And so when we talk about what is the profession, you know, everybody has a different focus. For me, example, every, every student I meet, every client I meet doesn't leave that first meeting without me telling them that they have to know the world is running out of potable water. And that's critical to everything I do is about how to harvest that water, improve rainwater, because it's coming more frequently in greater intensity than ever before. And we look at it as a threat, but at the same time, our aquifers are depleting. And our aquifers are where we get our potable water from, that water which will not harm us. And so by harvesting rainwater, we could turn it into potable water. It's actually up to 37% cheaper to, to treat rainwater to potability than it is to desalinize salt water with all other collateral benefits. In terms of rising costs of water, because that's a way to, to control the, the distribution of what is a very precious resource, we're going to find that more and more people are going to be tempted to do those very things. Then there are other uses of potable water that make no sense. Why do we use potable water to flush our toilets? I mean, things like that. So that's the kind of thinking landscape architects do. And I was asked by, I was very fortunate to be asked by the White House in the last administration to come speak to the President's Council on Environmental Resilience. And we were discussing things like that, like cooling, heating, and cooling, heating and cooling mechanicals on a building how we could cool those with stormwater and some of the creative things that we can do to take the pressure off of this diminishing resource of potable water. So for me, water is a beginning point for every project. And you think landscape architect, well, that means you put in plants. Well, there are some landscape architects who never deal with plants. They deal with construction methods or ins installation of materials, or they deal with photometrics for calculating how to make the best ball field. Um, they don't deal with plants necessarily, but Others of us do in some different degrees. And for me, plants are designed from the roots up. How can I design the plants that work with the water regime and the soils I have 
and then become aesthetic and important parts of this environment. We talk about pollinator species. That's in the wheelhouse of landscape architects. So I think a very general description, man, I'm going on and on about this. A very general description is something I tell my students, and that is that you are our hope, and not just as a society or as a profession, but our students are our hope for our planet, or our species, actually. The planet will continue in some way even after we're gone. But what we want to talk about is how humans fit in the landscape and how they can continue to live and thrive. And landscape architects deal with that. We deal with water, we deal with plant materials, so therefore urban agriculture, infrastructure for uh, edible landscapes. Yeah, that's some of the stuff we do. We talk about how everybody now has too much anxiety. The world, you know, anxiety is the new normal. And we've known for as long as that's been true that the, the antidote to that anxiety is exposure to green space. And so that's something else that landscape architects do. So we talk a lot about high-performance landscapes. And so I like to think every landscape I design is a high-performance landscape. And what that means is it has these restorative qualities. When you see it, you feel renewed and reconnected with nature. And at the same time, you may not understand it or even notice it, but that landscape is also harvesting water, dealing with pollution. I use some of the plants I use are phytoremediators that pull pollution out of water and different systems like that, that can be edible landscapes as well as, you know, high functioning landscapes for water. And then also um, as relief or places that people can go and sit for a while. So I put in, you know, um, universal accessible, universally accessible uh, access so that people can move through these spaces at the same time they're experiencing different levels of a release from the, the intensity of life. So those are things we do. Uh, urban agriculture is part of landscape architecture. We talk about the densification of cities. ASLA was kind enough to send me as their representative to Habitat 3, which was in Quito, Ecuador in 2016. It was the uh, third iteration of the UN's every 20 year meeting to get uh, the world together to talk about the status of cities and, and humanity really. And that whole outcome of that was the big notion that there's more densification in cities and that's a trend that's going to continue. So we talk about dense cities, those spaces where people can find relief from the intensity of city life become even more precious. But other than that, also, let's think about with more intense cities, you know, we think about, we hear about food food uh, connections, how how fragile the connection is when we move farmers farther away from cities. So now we're depending on the transit of that food from the grower to the city to be consumed. So that's a very critical and thin thread if you think about it. But how about the water connection? So if we're gonna make more intense cities, we have to have landscape architects engaged in harvesting water and doing more vertical gardening and more intense production of food in cities so that we don't have these tenuous connections with the things we need to live. So that's how landscape architects figure into that space as well. So there are all kinds of different areas. In fact, I interviewed a landscape architect at, at the university a couple years ago uh, who does now just rooftop gardens in Manhattan. And he partnered with Columbia University to do research on one of his rooftop gardens. And 35 stories above the streetscape in Manhattan they documented 36 different kinds of pollinator species that came through that rooftop garden. One of our past students, Daniel Below, has, been, has done a, a podcast, a TED, a TED Talk, on uh, 
pollinator species. She was working in Houston and she went to the Houston city government and said, you know, you require us to put plants between parking areas and streets. And that's a good thing. You know, it gives us relief from the parked cars. It makes a separation that humans can relate to. But have you ever considered making those species pollinator friendly? And the city of Houston said, what's that mean? And so she gave them a quick plant pellet and they said, okay, because we know that pollinators are in a serious state of decline. And as pollinators fail, so does our, our <laughs> we lose some more options to survive on this planet because they keep us eating things. They're so engaged in everything we consume. So one of the big ways to stop a pollinator species is to cut short its migration patterns. You limit how far that species can fly and it's only gonna have so much lifespan. It's not gonna be able to do enough to stay a viable entity. And so we're in a bigger state of decline. So now in Houston, they have corridors that were before known as streets. We think of them as now pollinator habitat. And they move through these streets and they don't harm people. And they simply pollinate species that really keeps us as part of this planet. So that's landscape architects think. You know, it's the stuff we do. And so there's so many ways to approach this. Does that, is that a good start? <laughs> yes, it really is. I know when I'm talking to people, especially people I just meet, they go, oh, you're an architect. And I'm like, well, not exactly, um, which mm -hmm. is part of the way that I got the name for the podcast. We do everything but the building. So that's a great way to kind of highlight all of the different aspects that we do in our profession on a day-to-day -day basis, whether that's us specifically or someone else on a different side of the spectrum. Everything But the Building is sponsored by LandFX. Based in San Luis Obispo, California, LandFX develops, sells, and supports software for landscape architects, irrigation designers, and other design professionals. Check them out at landfx.com. So if someone was interested in studying landscape architecture, I know most uh, programs throughout the country have a specific set of courses. What type of classes do you think that um, most students would be looking at taking when they're going to study landscape architecture for a degree? Oh, great question, Stacey, thank you. Well, first off, those, every one of the uh, curriculums in landscape architecture has to have certain courses included, and that's by a, a group called the Landscape Architecture Accreditation Board, and that's, part of how we how we can defend the fact that we are a profession is that we have this not necessarily uniform but general organized set of classes that everybody has to study in order to be able to uh, have graduated from an accredited landscape architecture program so that's been looked at in terms of uh, other things we can discuss those later but so there will be certain things expected of you in the program to prepare for that program though some of the stuff you're gonna think about is that everything you do helps make you a better landscape architect. So there are a lot of different people that approach this from different angles. You need to be able to do some kinds of calculation, you need to have some math. Um, most programs used to require, in fact, it used to be part of the LAAB requirements that you study calculus, that's not required anymore. I can't encourage you enough to understand math because you're gonna to need to be able to do some pretty straightforward calculations don't be afraid of math, but to approach it as a designer, if that's your approach, and that's okay. If you're more of an engineering person, I'll be happy to share the math with you. We can talk calculus all day long, and it's really magical 
but you don't have to necessarily understand that part of it to be able to do what we do. It can make you more focused when we talk about water or structural analysis of materials, but you can work with a team of landscape architects where one person happens to have that is, and you understand the language they're speaking as a landscape architect. Because again, part of being an effective landscape architect is speaking many languages. So to go back to your great question, um, you know, we, I talked about bespoke landscapes. Well, one part of that is culture. You know, culture is critical. If nobody's paying attention to culture and design of spaces, pretty soon we'll have what Gertrude Stein said of, of Oakland, that when you're, that's when you're there, there's no there, there. And so we're the, we're the author of that. We have to study space and the people who use those spaces so we can create spaces that relate to the culture of place. And that culture is architectural, it has history, it has all the moving pieces of the people who live there and have lived there. So if you have an interest in art history, study art history, bring some of that with you. Look at your cultural roots and give value to that through design. Another thing is art. You should understand how to organize space. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a fine artist, but to be able to draw or to think about those things is great. Now I have students who really don't care to draw, but they love to participate on the computer to do computer art. That's the same idea of organizing space. I happen to like to connect through a pen. I think that's critical. But I think that however you do it, you need to understand that, yeah, there is an artistic component of what we do and be able to illustrate that has a certain demand on, on that as well. So those are good classes to take. So you can't know enough about soils. Every landscape architect should know a lot more about soils than we do. And um, as, a, as, as part of that curriculum that you'll take in the accredited programs, yes, you will study some soils. Uh, need to study more if you can. You'll have some botany. You'll need to understand stuff about plants and how different plants work in the environment. The more specific you become, the more you can do certain things in your practice. But you don't have to speak all of these languages. You just have to understand some of the words so that you begin to become engaged. And you'll find that as a, as a fabric, we're a very diverse fabric. And you'll find landscape architects who are passionate about plants but really don't care about the structure of pavement. You'll find another person on this in the studio who is absolutely nuts about the structure of pavements and how that can work with plants, but maybe, you know, it's not that same passion. And so there's this interweaving of those passions that become the profession. And then you have some lunatics like myself who are generalists and we love all those things. You never do enough. Uh, you learn to learn to speak the language of space. So, Studying hydrology will help. You'll have some of that in the accredited program. You'll learn to do construction details. So like for me, I've worked a lot of construction in my life. Being able to build things is helpful, but if you've never built anything, I can help you and so can other professors help you understand how things fit together and to start to ask those critical questions that you'll need to answer when you do details. And so details for construction are part of it, understanding how things work, uh, so what I'm talking about is people with a lot of different passions coming together in one space. And each person never, I would encourage you never to deny or diminish where your passion is, but just represent that as a part of you that helps you approach this big picture of landscape and how you can be a participant in that evolution of a positive landscape. So you can't go wrong setting anything really, but the more you can focus on the natural environment, understanding mathematics. I mean, one way to do that's through music, understand music, it's math, you know, and that will help. So there are a lot of ways to get there. As you're saying these, I'm like thinking about all my years in the program and picturing every single class that I took and what 
building on campus we were at and I'm like hopping around campus as you're talking is that's a good reminder I think the one that I was waiting for that you didn't mention was surveying is that we are also required at least at Wisconsin to take a surveying course and that's one that I know I used immediately upon graduation that I think a lot of people in the profession don't use every day so depending on what type of job you jump into could be using that also. That's absolutely true. Surveying is an important thing to understand. And again, the more you can understand about the different allied professions that work together with us, the better you're going to be. And you need to be able to do some of those things. And surveying is absolutely critical to be understand how, as a minimum how to read a survey and how to work with it. But if you can go out and perform a survey, the better off you are. That's all. Yeah, that. uh my map reading skills. <laughs> Sometimes I will go out with someone, we're on a trip and they're turned around, they have no idea where we are. And I'm like, we just have to go over that hill, take a ride, blah, blah, blah. And we'll be right where we need to be. And they're so confused. <laughs> yeah, yep. no, I'm pretty good with directions. Good. <laughs> All right, so as you're taking these courses, you finally get to graduation day, but you can't quite still technically call yourself a landscape architect. Could you give a little bit of background on what makes someone qualified to call themselves a landscape architect? Uh, great question. Well, um, the first step you've already taken at that point, you've graduated from an accredited program. So landscape architecture is a profession and it defies the common definition of profession. One of the things I've often said is that we now kind of ubiquitously apply that term professional to a lot of things that are really not professions, they're occupations. And I think one of the important things we need to understand is that there's great honor and wonder in being a good occupation, being a person that does a job and do it well. And being in an occupation is not, not a bad thing, it's not a negative thing at all. Profession demands more, it's more of a calling, and it requires certain things to be done. So at the turn of the last century, the American Medical Association hired an individual named um, Abraham Flexner. And Abraham Flexner was an educator, I think, in Kentucky. And uh, he defined a profession. And he had six criteria. And of those criteria, one of them was a learned environment, things you can learn. Um, it's theory applied. It's not just theory as theory itself. And <clears throat> it goes through a series of these. And the final one is the one that really winnows out a lot of what we call occupations we may call professions and that is the idea of altruism would you know what does this serve the betterment of humanity would you do this for free because this has to happen and i think there are a lot of ways to interpret that and that really is the defining thing for me as a profession so to become a profession you have to graduate with an accredited curriculum and it's not just university accreditation it's the landscape architecture accreditation board accredited so you've learned those particular classes and those schools that are accredited have gone through this accreditation process at a maximum of every six years. They're reviewed, a team comes out and comes onto site and reviews the entire curriculum, looks at all the past work that's been done by students, looks at how things are being taught, looks and evaluates the program at the university, and then gives a, a read on whether the program is doing what it needs to, where it can correct. So this accreditation is an ongoing and vital thing to keep these programs in line and make sure they're doing the right work, giving the students what they need to succeed as a professional in this particular profession. 
So you graduate from an accredited university. Then it used to be that you were required to do an internship uh, working for a landscape architect who's licensed in a particular state. Now, almost all the states have now removed the internship requirement, but they've put it into uh, time in service. So what you'll do is you'll work for a landscape architect and you can immediately sit for the national examination, the landscape architecture registration exam. And that exam used to be three eight-hour days in a row. That's when I took it. And you would that final day, you couldn't drive. You were basically lucky if you could find your car. It was really a rough experience. But now it's, a, it's equally rough. It's just different. Now it's done through computers. It's no longer done in a testing center. It's done through computer testing, and it's done in modules. And so what you'll do is you will sign up for these different modules, and you'll take the exam, and uh, you'll get the results of that exam. Once you have passed, satisfactorily passed that examination, now you can apply to your state for a license to practice. And that license will allow you to practice the art and science of landscape architecture and call yourself a landscape architect. Now that leads to the difference in the laws. Um, landscape architecture is one of the few professions that has two different acts in every one of the different states. There's what's called a practice act and there's what's called a title act. A title act says that you cannot call yourself a landscape architect until you've satisfied the following criteria. First, you have to graduate from an accredited program. Then you have to pass the examination. And then you apply to the state and you can now call yourself a landscape architect. Now that's a little bit weak because what that means is that as long as you don't call yourself a landscape architect, you, somebody else can do the work with no background or education. And so it really kind of muddies the water as to what landscape architects do. And that's why um, 50 states now, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico have, practice, have title acts. That's a title act. But the Practice Act says that you can't practice the art and science of landscape architecture until you've done all those same things. And so every state has a different definition of what a practice act is, what it's, how that particular state has it evolved. And... Um, we have uh, 48 practice acts in the United States. In fact, over my right shoulder is a reduction. Uh, I'm the author of the practice act in Wisconsin. So the lobbyist that I worked with part-time at the end of our, what was an 11 year stint for me to get that law through the top, he gave me this little frame. The very top piece is a reduction, a small, a reduced picture of the law. Then the below that is a picture of me standing behind the then governor and the very bottom little horizontal piece is the pen that the governor started to sign the bill with that uh, was given to me because of, of the work done. That's really cool. And what year did you say that Wisconsin got the Practice Act that you guys oh got my that? Gosh. That was 2010. Okay, so not actually all that long ago. No, not that long ago at all. As I mentioned, Today's episode was just the first of two for my discussion with Sean. Be sure to check back in two weeks for the rest of our chat. If you have any questions or comments, please visit everythingbutthebuilding.com and leave a message. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you'd like to give feedback or episode suggestions, you can send it directly to ebtbpodcast at gmail.com. Cover art for the podcast was created by at James E. Butler 
and music for the podcast was created by Adam Chikinskis and Dan Ross.